today on Ag News Daily. So we're going to sell their antlers for uh, people that do artisans who usually do like carvings and that sort of thing. Today is December 30th, the last Ag News Daily edition of 2022. Tanner and Delaney here joining you to wrap up a strong year of Ag News. Delaney, we should have, you know, a lot of podcasts do a best of or do a My Favorite Story Mm -hmm. edition. And uh, we didn't do that. We brought fresh news. But now I'm starting to think maybe we should have tried to pick out our favorite story of the year. I know as you were saying that I was trying to think who would have been my favorite interview or my what would have been my favorite story. I'm going to have to think about that one. Maybe we can come back the uh, first day of 2023 with that little blurb to reflect back on how 2022 went. Okay. I think that's a good idea. I would say probably just off the top of my head, the most impactful interview I feel like I did in 2022 was when I got to sit down with a Ukrainian farmer, Case Housinga. That would be a be a pretty easy one, I think, for you to pick out. I did take a little note out of your book and looked up some quick statistics on the New Year's, kind of like oh, you did around the Christmas holiday. What percentage of U.S. adults do you think set New Year's resolutions? Uh, I'm going to say 55 percent. 38 and a half percent. Out of those New Year's resolutions, half of them are to do what? Lose weight. Yes, exercise more. And how long (laughs) do you think New Year's resolutions last? How many, what percentage do you think quit within the first week? Oh, of that 38% that you said, probably like at least half of them. Yeah, it's uh, 25%. How many do you think make it past the first month? I'm going to say less than 5%. Ooh, you are more aggressive. You don't have faith in the Americans. 36% make it past their first month. So nearly a third of all of New Year's resolution setters stick to their resolutions. So uh, keep it up, listeners. It is worth doing. You could fall in that one third. How many do you think keep the New Year's resolutions for the entire year? A really, really small percentage. It's not as small as you think. It's 9%. Okay. That is not as small as I would have thought. Yes. Yeah, there you go. So you got to step your game up, Delaney. You got to keep it all year and be in the top 10% of the nation in those dedicated to their New Year's resolutions. See, I'm more in the mindset. We talked about this yesterday. I set goals and it's unrealistic Mm -hmm. to meet all of your goals. So I try to meet like 75% of my goals because it's really unrealistic that you're going to meet every goal every year. And that probably would just be quite exhausting. Yeah, I totally, totally get that. Delaney, I always start off with a little bit of weather. I got just small headlines today. We've got winter weather hitting Kansas starting tomorrow, lasting uh, through the weekend. And the storm will hit central Can- central U.S. area, but models are showing that it may move north into Kansas. They have been extremely dry, so maybe the snow will be welcome. Rainfall is in the forecast potentially for Missouri, Illinois, and Indiana today into tonight. It's not going to be super heavy rain. It looks like a pretty quiet weather world for us here in the U.S. 
Well, I have a little bit of weather updates here as well, Tanner. As we saw the U.S. drought monitor released yesterday for the week ending the week prior. And as to be expected, drought conditions are continuing to get worse, Tanner. Of the 48 lower states, about 41.5% of the U.S., is in drought conditions. Actually, it was a slight improvement compared to last week, just up seven-tenths of a percent, but down significantly compared to last month. About 330.6 million acres of crops in the U.S. are experiencing drought conditions this week, and about 104 million people in the lower 48 are affected by drought, Tanner. 37 of the U.S. states are experiencing moderate drought, D1, or worse this week. And that actually worsened compared to the week prior and to last month as four more states headed into the D1 phase. Really kind of the only areas that don't have a ton of drought conditions, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor, are the states in the eastern portion of the United States. But we also saw that weather outlets are reporting California specifically has really high chances of wildfire risks. 85% of rural land in California is now in high or very high risk for wildfires, according to a new weather analysis tanner. So those folks certainly are going to have to keep things in check as they head into potentially a pretty dry winter season here. Uh, the amount of land in the very high severity zones, zones saw a really significant jump, increasing 14.6%. And if the latest proposed map is approved by U.S. weather folks, that's going to be nearly 17 million acres of California farmland, agricultural ground, rural ground. That is in very high wildfire risk zones. Uh, that is apparently an area larger than the whole state of West Virginia, Tanner. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think of West Virginia as being a super large state, but it does give us a little bit of perspective. I'm going to hit a couple of quick headlines related to Russia and Ukraine and the U.S. and China. So it looks like a mission flown over the South China Sea by American pilots was thwarted, or at least they were forced to maneuver to avoid a collision. A Chinese fighter jets flew dangerously close to Air Force planes that were conducting a surveillance mission over what is considered to be international waters. They were stating that the U.S. mentioned they were in international airspace. This was a perfectly legal operation, but yet our plane had to take an evasive maneuver in order to avoid a collision. Delaney, I saw the video that went along with this Chinese jet getting close to the U.S. airplane. And I would say that if a car got that close to me on the interstate, I'd be nervous, let alone flying uh, super fast in fighter jets across the seas. China stated that they were invading Chinese airspace, but uh, the U.S. and Indo-Pacific Joint Force will continue to provide surveillance to this area dedicated to a free and open Indo-Pacific region for all to fly, sail, and operate as they should. But now when we go over to the Ukrainian side of the sea, they are looking to push back. And Ukrainian soldiers are reporting that uh, they are making progress towards the gateway city, uh, city of Crimea. The Ukrainian trips are engaged in heavy fighting. They've now advanced 2.5 more kilometers this last week towards the direction of the city. They're expecting there to be 
Russian consolidated defenses, but they are looking to break their defenses, which cuts off supplies to the region. So that will be a very big focus of theirs. And there's also headlines coming out, Delaney, that Crimea may fall as the Crimean Peninsula has been a stronghold of Russian forces since their annexation in 2014. So this was not part of the latest invasion, but is a place which is providing a lot of supplies to the Russian front. So now it looks like there could be Ukrainian forces with support from allies that are looking to push Russians out of the peninsula. I don't see this headline having much of a strategy besides the fact that there is only one bridge in and out of the peninsula. Otherwise, it's surrounded by the Black Sea, Delaney. So quite an interesting headline that came about because that's also one way that Peter Zion during his presentation a couple of weeks ago said that Ukrainians could really weaken the Russian defenses. So it would be a very strategic move. And it looks like Ukrainian forces are one, as we reported yesterday, bracing for a New Year's Day attack and two, making advancements of their own. Well, Tanner, we also saw some fresh word from Russia here that, as we know, they have continued to do business or working with China to continue to do business. And China will adjust import and export tariffs on some of their goods starting January 1st to speed up and promote development and expand domestic demand. But Putin also came out and said that on Friday, Russia has become one of China's leading suppliers of oil and gas with 13.8 billion cubic meters of gas shipped to China via the power of Siberia pipeline in the first 11 months of 2022. But as I mentioned there, China is also continuing to try to expand their own domestic production and export tariffs on aluminum and aluminum alloys will also be raised. The current import tariff will stay on seven types of coal until March 31st. But as competition grows with U.S. technology issues, China will further reduce their tariffs for more favored nations on 62 types of information technology products starting July 1. So it sounds like Tanner China is really trying to make adjustments for those preferred partners, and the U.S. is not currently one of them. Not making the list. That's unfortunate. As I take a little fuel transition from your article back to ethanol production here within the U.S., ethanol production reported by the Energy Information Administration for the week ending December 23rd plunged to the lowest level in more than two months, but yet our inventories went up. Output last week averaged 963,000 barrels per day. That is down from the 1.029 million barrels. That's the lowest since the week ending October 7th. But like I said, stockpiles climbed through that week ending December 23rd. The stockpiles here in the U.S. are now up to 24.636 million barrels. That is up from 24.067 million barrels, Delaney. So just to pull out of those headlines, it looks like there was less demand here as we approach the holiday season. And... Uh, they lowered their production to align with that. Again, Midwest region was by far the largest producing region. There were losses in production on the East Coast for ethanol. So we continue, we'll continue to monitor this each week. But for right now, our stockpiles still look to be in healthy consideration. They do. I saw that. I saw that headline as well, Tanner. But final headline I have here for 2022 is a look at inflation. Just over half of the U.S. states are exhibiting signs of slowing economic activity, according to new research from the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank. The report on Wednesday 
followed another report from the San Francisco Fed earlier this week that also delved into the rising prospect that the U.S. economy may fall into a recession at some point in the very coming months. The St. Louis Fed report said that if 26 states have falling activity within their borders, that offers, quote, reasonable confidence that the nation as a whole will fall into a recession, Tanner. Yeah, that's not good news. <laughs> I was waiting for a different end to that article. Last nope, piece that's I it. Sorry. Nothing cheery nope. today. Well, I've got some cheery news to wrap up our headlines for today. Carbon by Indigo paid another $3.7 million out in a second tranche of payments related to carbon credits. Farmers have now earned $30 per carbon credit sold in the Carbon by Indigo second round of payments. This is a notable milestone for Indigo and producers in the industry. Heather, their vice president of Carbon Commercials, made the announcement. We're excited to celebrate the growth of Carbon by Indigo with the second round of payments for our farmers. This gives, pay, gives farmers the leg up as they make purchasing decisions for next year's growing season. The announcement was made in mid-December that Indigo had 450 farmers participating in their program. For the farmers who participated in the first issuance of credit payments, they received an additional payment to reflect this $30 rate, which was a 200% increase over the minimum payment promised. Payments per credit have doubled from our initial payments to farmers in September of 2021. We're excited to see Farmers benefiting from adopting practices that sequester carbon and improve soil health. This program right now, if our listeners are looking to sign up, Carbon by Indigo is available in 30 states and will pay for practices such as cover crops, no-till, reduced tillage, and nitrogen application protocols that qualify. They are looking to enroll additional farmers. Indigo says its program doubled in acres during 2022, and they would love to see that happen again in 2023. So there you go, Delaney, a little happy news for those that are enrolled for the end of 2022. All right. Well, as we head into the final trading session of 2022, Tanner, we are seeing once again, mixed trade to finish out the week. March corn in the overnight here, unchanged. We'll open this morning at 679. New crop corn down a penny and a half in the overnight will open this morning for its final session at 611. Soybeans, on the other hand, are continuing their positive momentum this week as the January contract added 15 and three quarters cents in the overnight. We'll open here at 1524. At the opening bell, November new crop soybeans will open eight and a half cents higher at 1423 and three quarters. Wheat is flirting with neutral today as the hard red March winter wheat contract down just a half a penny in the overnight at 866, whereas we look out to the May contract and it is up three quarters of a cent at 862. And livestock yesterday had mixed trading day as the February live cattle contract added a dollar oh five and will open this morning at a buck fifty eight eighty five. January feeders thirty two cents higher yesterday will open at a dollar eighty three eighty and February lean hogs down two dollars twelve and a half cents yesterday will open its final session of the year at eighty eight sixty seven. Tanner, let's turn it over to a fun Friday conversation today talking reindeer farming. Final interview here for 2022. Chatting today with Kelly and Mike Gregg of Rootstown Reindeer Farm. Kelly and Mike, thank you guys both so much for joining us today. Certainly excited to talk to you guys about reindeer farming of all things. Thank you so much for having us. 
So how did you guys get into farming reindeer? That's my biggest question I've got to ask here. So farming is a, uh, a fairly broad term for us. Um, we have three uh, because they are exotics and they are rather rare in the in the farming world. What started out as well, we call it the, the kind of crazy hallmark dream. I literally went to bed one night and dreamt that we were picking up baby reindeer and then woke up and had no idea if that was an even a possibility in the lower 48. Had no idea. Didn't know if they lived here. Didn't know they were on a farm. I knew absolutely nothing. And that began about a four year process of research about reindeer and where to get them and how to raise them and their health issues and what their requirements are, because they're some of the most highly regulated animals on any farm or ranch. Wow. I just, Delaney knows me quite well. And so do our listeners. I'm refraining from all the dad jokes about we couldn't get the interview done before Christmas because you had to have the reindeer all in training for Santa Claus and you got into yes. reindeer farming because he's your brother or long last cousin. Uh, but I will refrain from any more talks <laughs> about Santa. This is just fascinating. So tell our listeners before your dream, what, what were you doing? Were you, have you always been farmers or, or did this no. happen during the dream? No, I, in all honesty, neither one of us have ever loan, owned livestock before. We uh, Neither one of us was raised on farms. Um, I was raised in a small factory town in Ohio. Uh, we lived outside of, uh, Mike was uh, raised in a suburb of Cleveland. Uh, we lived on the west side of Cleveland for many years and uh, Chicago for his job. He worked for Continental Airlines turned United Airlines and then outside Chicago, and then back to Cleveland and um, had the dream. And then, uh, like I said, researched reindeer and kind of, I think like all farmers, I think most people, most people in agriculture understand this. It's an obsession. You sort of get obsessed by it because you're not going to do it for the prestige or the money. So you're going to go for that idea of, you know, whatever it is your interest is. And that's kind of what spurred us on. So now that you guys have been doing this for a few years, how do you, I mean, obviously at Christmas time, I'm sure this is a big attraction, but aside from kind of the holiday season, what else do you do with reindeer? I assume you're not eating them, but what else are you doing from a reindeer farming perspective? Now there are, there are much larger reindeer farms and ranches that, and they do, they utilize every aspect of the reindeer as do the indigenous over in Siberia, over in the Nordic Laplands and our Alaskan indigenous also, they use every inch of the reindeer. I mean, the antlers are used for tools. Now we're going to sell the antlers of our reindeer. We have three. So we're going to sell their antlers for uh, people that do artisans who usually do like carvings and that sort of thing. Fur we turn into Christmas ornaments. So I craft with a lot of this stuff. Now we don't happen to eat ours because they're Oscar, Ollie and Ozzy. They're more pet than farm animal in that way. But other, other uh, farms and ranches, absolutely. They sell it for exotic meat and they use, they use the reindeer that way. But for us, it's, it is, uh, we're agritourism. So for, we use their excrement, their poo for uh, all of our fertilizer on all of our gardens because they are vegetarians. And we do that with our rabbits as well. But um, they're, they're mostly, we're, uh, we're exhibitors for these guys and we do reindeer education. So that's that's exciting. But whenever I hear the terminology agritourism, 
I think back to what type of an effect COVID had on this. Of course, that was probably near the beginning of what you guys were working on, but how have things shaped up since the initial outbreak of COVID-19? That's been, uh, that's been, of course, I think everybody's biggest challenge. Um, and we were, we were desperately trying to open and I'm a retired nurse. So I was very aware of, uh, the situation of, of, uh, transfer for, you know, the, the flu, um, or the COVID virus. So the, one of the things we did was we had to revamp everything that we had originally, you know, the, the original business plan was four or five years. So when we bought the farm, it was actually right before COVID outbreak came. So we revamped everything for our ability to show the animals. And then we also had to wait to see, uh, because it is zoonotic. So we didn't know what that was going to mean for us for the reindeer because reindeer are are susceptible as to whitetail uh, issues. So in the whitetail here in Ohio, they were testing them and large percentages of the ones they were testing. I mean, we're talking about 30, 40, 50% were coming out COVID positive. Nobody knew what that meant, you know, how that would affect them if it was going to have the same effect that it did with humans. So a lot of that was a lot of hurry up and wait, which was, of course, it, it absolutely affected our bottom line. But the way we do it now is um, we do have a, a Christmas barn. And so we, uh, now that there's another surge, we're gonna be masking indoors, but most of the tour is outdoors. And so it's very well ventilated and we have hand washing stations and, and we have uh, the hand sanitizer available all over the place so that we don't have any cross-contamination, that sort of thing. But we're, we're very aware. But the one thing that affected us with COVID coming on was how we book our groups. Oh, yeah. We have a, a maximum of 20 people per hour and you have to be within the same bubble. So if a family of, you know, six book that hour, that's all that we have is the six people and they're in their bubble and they're not affecting uh, any other family or uh, we feel comfortable with the uh, low numbers also as far as a, a group event goes. So we have restricted that as far as crowds go. And, um, and right now we're the only two that run the tour. So there's only two of us and hopefully we'll expand next year, but that's why we, we have kept the crowds down to be aware of the possible spread of COVID and to keep that uh, in check the best we can. Well, yeah. And it, the, the keeping with the bubble here was the other thing that the side benefit for us was we found out that families who had, um, autistic children or autistic young adults um, were able to come because there were no large crowds for any sensory issues. So there were a bunch of different side benefits, definitely for us, uh, for keeping our numbers low and having everybody come within their bubble. And I think the agritourism space obviously was impacted probably pretty heavily during COVID. And it sounds like you guys have been able to find different ways around that. But agritourism as a whole, as an industry, I think is just super fascinating to learn about how people started doing it, why people started doing it, and then really how they've transformed it into a business, which it sounds like you both really have turned this into a business. Is this kind of your full-time gig now? Are you guys both retired from past lives? Yes, we're we're both retired and this is our full time gig. And um, yeah, because of our fascination with the reindeer and how that all started. Now we get to do reindeer education. We have six rescue rabbits. We don't rescue them ourselves, 
but we we do uh, we have taken on six rescue rabbits, so we do rabbit education. So it's a lot of animal education, and we are starting the planting portion of this. So we're learning as much as we can about that. And every every opportunity we get to um, share information, we do, and we think that's like one of the biggest parts of agritourism is the the sharing of the information to folks, because I think most people don't. They don't know what goes into um, having an operation like this. And what would you say is the most interesting thing or unique thing that you've learned about reindeer farming or just agritourism in general since you've started down this venture? (laughs) Yeah, Um, well, because I had been uh, so riveted by agritourism and had been following it. So obviously anybody that had any um, history in it I followed. And so, but the thing about agritourism that's so interesting is how new it actually is. It is still evolving and forming all the time and, and other farmers, which much more experience than we could ever possibly uh, gain are showing, you know, showing better ways to do things and, and going into that educational line. And um, so that's been, that's been fascinating to see. So for the reindeer, it's been, um, so having never had livestock, there's no preconceived ideas of what that's like. You know, I don't, we're never going to compare them to a horse or a cow because we have no concept. So for us, it has been uh, reindeer are just fascinating all on their own. They were domesticated long before horses. And they were, um, like I said, the indigenous um, have used every aspect of them. They're, they live with them. And with our guys, we go out in the springtime, in the summertime with our coffee and have coffee out in the pasture. We're, they're part of us. We're part of them. They're, they're more pet in some ways than a uh, farm animal. And just um, it's a never ending process to uh, keep them healthy. That's the, that's the biggest issue all reindeer farmers have is how uh, the challenge of keeping them healthy against tick-borne diseases and against other things that happen and parasites. And so because they are, um, they are exotics and they're just so unique, um, fighting veterinary care or getting uh, that kind of experience. We're so fortunate here our veterinarian is a white-tailed deer expert. Now, he's had to really shift gears with a reindeer to some degree, but um, but that's been the other. The other big challenge for reindeer folks is just having care available to them. And we have an incredible community uh, because we have our professional groups. So as you guys look forward to 2023, what are you most excited for? I think uh, the we're we're going to be planting and and putting in things um so that's kind of exciting because we're really just finding out on uh, our property what grows since we've only been here a couple years and then um just expanding the we we did of course do christmas tours we're still in season technically until the the 8th of january so um we're going to be expanding that. Uh, we're hoping to, to do Christmas trees, uh, cut trees next year. And just, um, I don't know, it's just to keep going on this path and to keep on the personable, educational kind of uh, venue for, for, our, for our purposes here on our farm. Well, this has been a pleasure. As we always say, these conversations go way faster than we ever expected. But if our listeners want to follow your journey or learn more about what you guys are doing. Is there a best way for them to find you? 
Uh, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, and we're on TikTok. So we have all of our social media. And then, of course, we're at RootstownReindeerFarm.com. All right. I appreciate that. And thank you again for being a guest on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Thank right, you so thank much. You. There you go, Delaney. I can't believe I refrained from making way too many dad jokes during that conversation. That was fun. A lot of energy. I did. They had a lot of energy. It was great to see that they are enjoying what they're doing in retirement. And it'll be fun to catch up with them again as they continue to build that little operation. Absolutely, Tanner. But with that, this is our final episode of 2022. Big thank you to all of our listeners here who have tuned in with us over the past year. We're excited to bring you fresh content in 2023. We will not be having a podcast on Monday, Tanner. So we will see everyone in the new year on Tuesday. With that, yeah, we, we wish let people go. Absolutely. Happy New Year's, everybody. And let's let them go. Yeah.